All right, everybody. Well, take your Bible and go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And if you're a guest with us, we have been on a series on emotions. And we are wrapping this down. Um, it's been really hard for me to figure out how to land this one. Uh, I think finally the Lord has kind of helped me this week kind of know where I'm going to land this thing. Um, I'll actually land it with Resurrection Sunday next week. I plan to preach a message that kind of culminates with this is the Passion Week of Christ. That word passion really isn't denoting emotion. It's really denoting suffering. The passions of Christ are really the sufferings of Christ, of what he goes through this week. But we're going to look at the culmination of that from the cross to the resurrection next week. And we're going to look at the emotions of love and anger and joy all wrapped up. And we're going to kind of culminate that in the Passion Week of Christ. Um, but I did, before we close out this series, I, I wanted to in, uh, to tie in some things about Paul and his handling of emotions in relationships. And there does some be, there is some tie in this in, in the fact of Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday, this is when he's coming into Jerusalem. They're saying, they're praising, they're making the declaration. They have great hopes. And then as you read the rest of the week, there's some highs and lows. And one of the things that's very interesting about Jesus during this week leading up to the cross is he does not stop actually engaging people, knowing what's going to happen, knowing what's going to be said. He does not emotionally withdraw. In fact, you'll find that that he goes into the temple and cleanses it and shows the righteous anger of God. When he is when he's with his disciples at the Last Supper, he's interacting with them. He is not pulled away. He's not pulled away from relationship because of the emotional harm that others may point towards him. All that's going on in the passion, the sorrow, the sorrow that we sang about this week leading up to the cross, leading up to the ultimate joy. That's why he went to the to the cross for the joy that was set before him in Hebrews 12. So next week, we're going to look at just this idea of the sorrow leading up to the cross, how God's love and anger and joy kiss each other and reality of the cross and resurrection, God's greatest um, communication of love. But leading up to that, I do want to make the point today that Jesus did not withdraw relationally because of emotion this whole week, if you go into Matthew and just start reading and just reading from the triumphal entry all the way to the cross, you don't find him withdrawing because of what emotional charged things or what people are saying, whether it's good or bad, whether it's the Pharisees, he's declaring woes to them. He's not withdrawing. Now, we'll look more at that next week. So this week, I want to do this. I find even a parallel in Paul's life that in First Corinthians chapter, I'm sorry, Second Corinthians chapter six and seven. Did I tell y'all to go to First Corinthians? Right. I really meant Second Corinthians. I was testing you. Were you really listening? Second Corinthians six through seven. Actually, I wasn't. You know, I get numbers mixed up in my head all the time. I find this: Paul is talking about emotion with the Corinthian church, and they had done him wrong. They had done him wrong. And yet, he doesn't disengage from them. Yet, he doesn't display to them the emotions that are going on in his soul in response to what they've done. He doesn't hide it. Now, he doesn't try to glorify himself in it. Any emotion he describes to the Corinthian church, when we're going to read about it in a minute, it's for the glory of God and their good. So, even Jesus, when we, when you, when you, when we go in this next Sunday in the last week, 
any emotion that he uses and describes and does is for the glory of God and the good of others. But Paul here, I think, is a wonderful example in 2 Corinthians of what do you do when people have hurt you? When they've hurt you. Anybody ever been hurt? What do you do when they hurt you? How do you handle that in your emotions? What to do with that? And you're going to see an example of Paul who legitimately was hurt by a church, the Corinthian church. And you're going to see how he responds. A very emotionally healthy person. So today's, if you're looking for a message, it's emotions and restoring relationships. Emotions and restoring relationships. That's what we're going to be kind of looking at. Before I do, I do have a couple of common sense things that I want to make sure and get out to you before this series closes. There's so many things, but I got to close it. Uh, you know, I've been, I'm, I've kind of been circling around closing this thing. I'm really going to close it next week with just this official. Uh, then I'm looking at after uh, Easter is doing a series on the fear of God. I want to explore that, the joy of fearing the Lord. Um, we might look at anger, then we'll be next into maybe an exposition, an expositional study. But a couple things I just want to tell you this. Uh, last week I talked to you a couple about a couple things about uh, unhelpful thoughts about emotions. I do want to tell you about five very healthy, I think, really good things about emotions, just to kind of help you cultivate good, godly emotions. Uh, this comes from a book called Untangling Emotions. And um, they really had kind of five things in this book that I thought were practical, helpful. This isn't necessarily tied to this message, but I thought, man, if I could give my people just something concrete um, to think about through the week, I'll tell you this. If you want to make sure you have a healthy, emotional life, read your Bible. I know that sounds pat, but just read your Bible. There is nothing more soul-satisfying than spending time with the Lord. Read your Bible. I cannot, I know we stress it, but man, read your Bible. You catch the heart of God when you read the scriptures. Number two is this. This may sound silly, but every now and then go outside. Go outside. You know, years ago, John Piper was asked um, why they, you ever notice that on strip clubs, they don't have windows on strip clubs, right? You ever notice that? Strip clubs don't have windows. And most people would assume, well, they don't have windows because they don't want you to look in. But that's not the truth. They want you to look in. Why do, not, why do they not put windows on strip clubs? Because perchance, if there's a window in a strip club, a man might see outside to the heavens and realize that there's something more majestic than this. So if they, it can just crowd his life out with the four walls in his own sin. Sometimes you just need to go outside. Sometimes we, we work in front of our computers and in walls so much that we forget to walk outside, look around, realize there is a creator God who is bigger. There is a God, and we're not him, right? That he's bigger. Sometimes you need to walk outside in the evening, look up to the heavens, and realize that he's bigger. You want to have an emotionally healthy life, read your Bible. One of the things also is you got to go outside every now and then. Like at your work, you, you need to, every now and then, just walk outside. And you kind of know it. Have you ever walked outside on one of those Saturdays that, like, the weather was perfect? And it was almost for a glimpse of a moment you thought, life, life really is good. Go outside. Number three, cultivate good negative emotions. Cultivate good negative emotions. Here's what I mean. 
We are so against any kind of sorrow, any kind of lamenting, any kind of like true guilt over sin. We want to minimize that. But there are good emotions in that. When there's a hurt in life, engage God in that hurt. Lament. Lament doesn't mean that we complain about God. What we do is we bring our pain to God and we say, God, this hurts, but I trust you. God, this hurts, but I trust that you're good, you're loving, you're wise. That would be engaging good negative emotions. I love that we sang songs a while ago about the sorrows of the week of the passion. And, you know, in many churches, there's not... You know, a lot of people, when they come to church, they don't want to sing any song that has anything to do with any kind of sorrowful idea. And I would say, you're not a really emotionally heavy person if you can't engage the full reality of all the emotions. There, there, there is a lack of appreciating Christ if you can't go... I love that we read Isaiah 53 and saw the sufferings of the Savior. Number four, build little altars... Not false idol altars, but build little altars of remembering God's character. I read a story about a guy that um, he was counseling a lady. And she liked to record their session so she could play back what had happened. But they had, the, the whole time he counseled her, she had this one little battery that was running this little recorder. And that battery just kept going and going for as many sessions as they had. And then after he asked if he could kind of keep that battery as a reminder of how God is unfailing and has longevity. So he said, I just, I sometimes have that battery on my shelf just to remind myself of just what God, what God has done. So sometimes in life, you might just want to take a reflection and have different ways that you can worship the Lord and remember how good he is, right? Have little, you know, you, you see this in the Old Testament all the time when God had done something, when they cross over the Jordan, they're building an altar, right? They're building an altar, some, some way to worship the Lord and remember. And the last, as, and I would say this may seem trite, but this is just, I'm just trying to give you some common sense things I just want to get out, not really tied to the text, but I think it'd be helpful. Number five, enthusiastically commit and participate in worship. Enthusiastically, I got it, amen. Enthusiastically, which means this. I'm telling you, the safest thing for your souls, our souls, is you've got to gather with God's people. I love how our church is meeting now. It is hard. You're like, most of us were making meals, right? And like, this is hard. You're getting all this together. You're coming here. But you know what I love about all this? I'm preparing ahead of time, and I'm thinking about my people, even as I'm cooking, even as I'm transporting. I'm thinking about who we can share and serve with. I love that. We come in. It's a chance to sing and reflect together. I love that we're meeting together and having conversations. An emotionally healthy person. I I give you so much hope in life if you have robust meetings with God's people as a normal part of your life. And what I love about the last two years of this whole COVID thing is it showed us just how damaging just staying in front of a Zoom or YouTube or Facebook or Facebook and just watching a service really didn't bring the satisfaction that all the emotions of life were meant to engage. So I would encourage you continue to make it a priority. We have more people that have come back, but don't let the things of life distract you, such as we're tired today or our kids are on a ball team. Like, listen, the priority of gathering with God's people is essential 
for the lifeblood of your soul. It is essential for the emotional health of your life. So those are just some common sense things that, that I think um, my, my, my heart was struck with. I wanted to tell you, read your Bible, go outside, cultivate good negative emotions, build altars of remembering God's character in your life, enthusiastically participate in corporate worship. Now let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Are y'all still with me? Y'all doing good? 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And today's going to be a little bit different. We're going to do a little bit of reading. Are you okay with reading the scriptures? I want to read this and I'm going to comment as we go along. Because I want you to kind of see the flow of this is a very personal thing that Paul is actually saying to these Corinthians. Of all the stuff that Paul writes, when you look at 2 Corinthians, that is probably the most emotionally laden book of all the New Testament books. Paul is describing what many times has gone on between he and the Corinthians. The background of the story is basically when you look in Acts chapter 18, you find that Paul plants the church at Corinth. Paul spends 18 months, basically two years of life, he pours into the Corinthians. He, he is a father to his children, he says later on in 2 Corinthians. He labors over them, loves them, brings them to Christ, Jew and Gentile. So he had a lot invested. He had, and he had, he had done it at such a magnanimous level in the sense that a lot of times when you were a traveling missionary like Paul, if you, did some kind of work, you would expect to receive support from those people. But Paul was so cautious with these Corinthians that he worked as a tent maker, didn't require any support from these Corinthians. He wanted to make sure that all the work that he did was above the board, that all his ministry that he did to them wasn't a result of any money or any support he was getting from them. He would raise his own support by his own tent making as he did ministry to the Corinthians. So Paul lived a very clean life before them, a very holy life. He lived a life that was about the glory of God and the good of bringing the gospel and discipleship to the Corinthians. So as far as on a surface level, there was nothing the Corinthians could throw as an accusation against Paul, except that basically Paul didn't take our money. And that's not a really good accusation, right? So here's Paul, the Corinthian church. He's a nothing but do right to them. He's a nothing but spend a lot of time with them. And when you read this book, you discover this. They hurt him. Have you ever given your life to somebody? I mean, given your soul and life only to have them turn disloyal to you? You ever been there before? Most of the time when that kind of thing happens, we just want to turn that person off, don't we? We just want to turn them off, forget about it, you're gone, you're dead to me. What I love about 2 Corinthians, haha, I got it this time, right? Chapter 6 and 7, is you see Paul having an interchange. And Paul is honest with what's going on in his soul. Paul is honest with what they've done, how that affects him. Paul's honest with how he would hope that they would open up in their emotions towards him. But in all this, you'll find this. Paul isn't centering this ultimately on himself. He's doing this for the glory of God and their good. That's a, a whole different scenario. A lot of times when we want people to understand the emotions that are going on inside of us, it's for our own glory. But when we actually express the emotions that are going on inside of us, it's for the glory of God and the good of the other person so that there can be an incarnational relational connection. Paul is trying to bring this across in 2 Corinthians 6 and 7. Let's take a look at it. 
just so you know, here's basically what had happened. There were these super apostles. You can, Paul defends himself against them in, in chapter 10 and 11, uh, later on in this book. These super apostles. They weren't really super apostles. They just claimed themselves to be this. After Paul had established this church, there are these false Judaizers that came along, tried to put them back underneath the law, that you earn your righteousness by your works. And then they started collecting money from the Corinthians. And then they started to accuse Paul's ministry work to a point that the Corinthians started to turn against Paul, started to turn against him, started to say all sorts of false and negative and untrue things about him. Paul had done nothing but done them right, and they had done him wrong. Now you discover earlier in the book, if you were to read 2 Corinthians Uh, chapter 2, that there was a a repentance about it. They actually changed their mind. God had showed them something different. They, um, But you do find that Paul comes and makes a visit, and the visit doesn't go very well. And Paul's hurt, hurt by it. Paul goes back, and he writes them another letter. It's called the Letter of Sorrow. We don't have it recorded. It's not meant for Scripture, but it was a letter that made them sorrowful, that brought them to repentance. And when we read this text, we'll find... That Paul had been awaiting when we get to chapter seven to hear back from uh, to hear back from Titus regarding regarding did they receive that letter that sorrowful letter that I sent them to let them know what they had done wrong did they repent are we back in fellowship and you can see Paul describes himself in Second Corinthians chapter seven this idea of man I was affected by this I was hoping that I would have a good response from you. When, when I heard from Titus, I'm, I'm hoping that things are going to be okay and all right now. Now, now that you know some of the background, Paul does them right, they do him wrong. They have thrown false accusations against Paul and his ministry, but yet now there's going to be a change. But let's look at Paul and how he kind of handles himself. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. It says in verse 1, Working together with him then, We appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time I have listened to you. and the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is a favorable time. Behold, now is a day of salvation. I just want you to notice in chapter 6, 1 through 2, this idea. Paul is trying to, to describe to them his emotions. He is acknowledging their, you're going to see he's going to acknowledge their repentance and the comfort. I mean, this is, this is. This is how relationships should look. But before he's even getting into that, you know what he's saying? I'm still concerned about salvation for you. So like everything I'm doing here, I just want you to know, today is the day of salvation. If there's some who don't know the grace of God, today is the day of salvation. When you read the end, the last chapter of 2 Corinthians, you find that there's a challenge to examine yourselves to see if you're in the faith. So this is what I love. Even when he gets into something very emotional through this, it's still not about him. It's about the glory of God. Even in the midst of the hurt and pain, he's still saying, I am concerned about your soul. Today is the day of salvation. The most emotionally healthy people are people who are focused on the glory of God and the good of the other person before their own selves. So he says that. Now look in verse 3. We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. Remember, they had thrown false accusations against him. And he says, I just want you to see the, the realities of my life. You know what I love? If anybody's ever hurt you, sometimes there's this thing of, I'm just going to give up and avoid them. I'm not going to make any defense. I'm not going to try to give any explanation. Paul doesn't go there. He's looking for their redemption. 
for the glory of God and their good. So look what he does. He gives a defense for his ministry, not for his glory, but for their good. Look in verse 3. We put no obstacle in any man's way so that no fault might be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. Remember, the way of these false apostles that came in and basically tried to down-talk Paul's ministry so that they could make money off the Corinthians, Paul's saying, here's a different direction. Look at us. By great endurance and afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are entreated as impostors and yet are true. Notice this. We are treated as impostors and yet are true. It is amazing. He can say there are these false accusations. We're treated as wrong, but I'm just telling you all the stuff that we've done right. As unknown yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing. I mean, Paul didn't act like what the Corinthians had done to him had no effect on him. As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. As poor, yet making many rich. As having nothing, yet possessing everything. Paul gives a full scope of what it looks like in his ministry, trying to show out to them, listen, the things the things that were said about those aren't true. This is the evidence that this is that, that we're doing good and right ministry. Now look at verse 11. We have spoken freely to you, O Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. Now, most of us, if someone who we had given everything to had betrayed us in the way the Corinthians had to him, a lot of times we just would have thrown them aside. But what is Paul doing? He's hanging in there, making a defense for his ministry, not for his good, but for the glory of God and their good, for their own salvation. And then he comes in and says, man, our hearts are wide open to you. I'm willing to be vulnerable enough to describe to you what's actually going on in my soul. I'm willing to be vulnerable enough to to talk to you about this, have a conversation with you. I'm not leaving the relationship. So many of us let our emotions drive us to leave relationships. And you remember that 15-point outline that I shared with you from Dr. Babbler, right? The very last thing on that outline, it says, when our focus is on loving God and loving our neighbor and our heart is right before God, we can deal with our emotions in a God-honoring way. What is he doing here? He's dealing with his emotions in a God-honoring way. So he says, we've spoken freely to you, O Corinthians. Our heart is wide open to you. You are not restricted in verse 12 by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. So Paul says, hey, I've not shut my soul up. I've not shut my life and emotions up to you, but you shut it to us. It wasn't me, it was you. But notice the ability that he's fighting for that relationship. Here's what scares me in life sometimes. Sometimes people get so emotionally unhealthy that they can't, they don't fight for those relationships anymore. They let the feelings give them to a point of just give up. A lot of times when we're doing that, it's because it really is just all about us. Paul is actually about the glory of God and the good of the Corinthians. That He could say, I've opened my heart wide to you. We haven't restricted. You've restricted yourself. I've not restricted myself. By the way, in our relationships, you know this because if anybody's ever hurt you, there's this idea of 
I'm never going to open up to them again. Right? It's like, I, you know, that's it. Like, I tried. What does Paul say? No, my heart's wide open to you. You may be restricting yourself, but, but not me. What a glory it is when you can actually still get hurt by somebody, but still continue to go back you, and describe the hurt, but also run towards forgiveness. Describe the hurt, but still keep pushing for relationship. When you read about the last week of Christ's life, I mean, it's not a life that's devoid of emotion still. But he didn't let the sin of man stop him from pursuing the glory of God. And he's still interacting with his disciples in that last week. Still, even in the garden, even when they couldn't watch and pray, he's still interacting. He's at the Last Supper. One's going to betray him, still interacting. He has Peter, who's going to betray him three times, still interacting. Just because we have emotions doesn't mean that we hold those in and hold out. So Paul here, man, what a picture of health. He's saying, we're free and we're wide open to you. Regardless of what's happened, we're, we're doing this. But you're the one that shut yourself up. Verse 13. In return, I speak as to children, widen your hearts also. He makes an appeal. He says, man, don't shut yourself up. And don't shut yourself down. I, I'm going to lead by example. I'm going to keep opening myself up wide. It, it burned me in the past. But this isn't about my own glory. It's the glory of God and the good of others. I'm going to keep opening myself up. Let me encourage you to do the same. I fear sometimes that God's people have grown so bitter and unforgiving and have not valued the work of the cross that they just keep shutting themselves up and will no longer talk about anything. They just rather sleep in a separate room, go a separate way, avoid each other, phone screen, not answer back a text, uh, you know, or whatever, right? That's not Paul right here. That's not how he pursues relationship. It was interesting. So he's concerned about their salvation still, but now look, keep looking in verse 14. He is also concerned about their sanctification. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, he says. This is what I love. He's still not afraid to declare truth to them. Have you ever... I mean, you would think that Paul would kind of think, okay, I just have to lay off of him and not speak God's truth anymore, right? I open my heart up to him. I encourage him to open their hearts. And now they... I just, I just need to be fearful because if I keep instructing them, now they could just be fear, now they could just lash out at me again. They don't find Paul thinking that way because it was never about himself to begin with. So look what he does. He's even jumping in and he's bringing this, some admonishment, even in the midst of this. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? Verse 15. What accord has Christ with Belial, what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has a temple of God with idols for you're the temple of the living God? So he basically says, don't be unequally yoked. Don't partner yourself up with sin. I mean, he's bringing an admonishment to them. He now quotes from Isaiah, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. I will be their God. They shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will welcome you. I will be a father to you. You shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Chapter 7, verse 1. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of the body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. So even in the midst of Paul being very personable, 
In verse 11 through 13, open up your hearts. He's still willing to, remember, it's not about him. It's not about his glory. It's about the glory of God and the good of others. He's encouraged their salvation. He's encouraging their sanctification. He even comes in and says, hey, don't forget, you've got to separate yourselves from defiling sinful things. If you've read enough of, especially like 1 Corinthians, you discover the Corinthians were pretty wicked people. They had a lot of very big name, immoral sins going all over the place. And so even in the midst of it, he's not going to give up. He's still going to say, hey, I want you to be brought to holiness and a fear of God. This is a man who is emotionally well-balanced and adjusted. Why is that? Because it's not about him. It's about the glory of God, the good of others. He's concerned about their salvation, their sanctification, and being an extension of what Christ is like. He doesn't disengage from these people, although they've hurt him severely. By the way, just a side note, and let me... Pause for a moment. I want to just put your eyes on this. Turn back to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. I do want you to, I just, I wasn't going to mention this, but I do want to put this in there so you know. There's this thing that people say sometimes is, you hurt me, I may forgive you, but the relationship's over. And then I would challenge you with this. Is that biblical? So, just to describe what happened, look in chapter 2, verse 1. He says in chapter 2, verse 1, For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. Because there was a visit that he made that was painful. But that's why he wrote, the, uh, he wrote this, what we would consider a letter that's it's not in circulation. It's not part of scripture. It's called the sorrowful letter, many scholars say. So he made a visit to them. It was painful. He says this in verse 2. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad? but the one of whom I have pain. And I wrote as I did so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. By the way, I love that he's even admitting that how they treat him does have an effect on him. For I wrote to you of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. So he writes this letter as a result of a visit that the visit to them went bad. It was painful. They rejected him. They had given over to these Judaizers. He, they, had, um, they were disloyal to his ministry. But yet, what he goes back and writes and describes to them really is not about himself even to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. His reaching out to them and letting them know the pain wasn't to just make them feel bad. It was actually to win them back. Now notice this. Now, if someone has caused pain, look in verse 5. He has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely to all of you. For such a one, the punishment by the majority is enough. Now, some, there is some person who, it's either the person who got disciplined in 1 Corinthians 1, or there's a person who was leading the charge of throwing accusation against Paul. It's possibly that person. However, what had happened is this person had done wrong. It had influenced the church. The church had realized that this person had repented. Now look at the response that Paul says you should have towards the person repenting. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. This is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. 
Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, that I have forgiven. And if I have forgiven anything, it has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. Remember, not for Paul's sake, but for Christ's sake, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we're not ignorant of his designs. That's what I love. Paul's even... You know, a lot of times when someone has repented to us, we'll go, I'll never open up to you again. Like, hey, I appreciate that you said that. I forgive you. And then in the back of your mind, you think, there's no way we're ever going to hang out again. There's no way I'm ever going to emotionally open up to you in any sort of way. And then I would say, does that even flow with how Paul treats the Corinthian church after what they've done to him? No, he says, in fact, if someone has repented, you actually have got to turn and comfort. And actually, they could be overwhelmed with excessive sorrow if you actually don't help them. Go back to 2 Corinthians chapter chapter 7. What vulnerability do we see in Paul? I don't know if you're catching the heart of this, but man, I'm, I'm, I'm wanting God's people to understand that when life's about God's glory... Like, we can display our emotions to people, and people ought to know the hurt. But not so we can just feel better about that we've told them how we're hurting, so that we can bring them closer to the foot of the cross and reestablish that relationship for the glory of God and their good. Look in verse 2. Make room in your hearts for us, he says. Don't you like that? Make room in your hearts for us. This is chapter 7, verse 2. We have wronged no one, we have corrupted no one, we have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I am acting with great boldness towards you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort. In our affliction, I am overwhelmed, I am overflowing with joy. Look at the, look at just his emotional appeal towards them. Even their response to him has an effect on him. Verse 5, for even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fears within. Just so you know what happened is this. Paul sends Titus with this, this letter, this sorrowful letter, and Paul has not heard back, and he's over in Asia, and he goes ahead and gets himself over to Macedonia so that he can meet Titus a little bit earlier because he was really anxious. He was really wanting to... To know, like, Titus, how did the reception? I sent that sorrowful letter. How did the Corinthians accept you? They had rejected me. I'm hoping that now, after I sent you to them with this letter, that they'll now, like, accept me. We'll be back in relationship. Like, I'm, but I'm, man, it's really disturbing me. That's why he says, fighting without and fear within. So Paul jumps over to Macedonia to try to meet Titus earlier so he can get news. How did it go when I sent this letter to Titus to the Corinthians? How did they respond? I love that Paul is transparent enough that he can describe to them and say, some of my joy, not my ultimate joy, but some of my joy was dependent on how did you respond to this? Verse 6. But God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he comforted, he was, he was comforted by you. As he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me so that I rejoiced still more. So basically, Paul hears from Titus, and Titus says they've changed their mind. They've repented. 
And, and in fact, their repentance is so deep. They are longing, mourning. They're zealous for you, Paul. They realize what's going on. And Paul says, that has had an effect on me. I've rejoiced even more. I love the emotional exchange it can have here. And this isn't about man's self-glory in this. This is about the incarnational life of human beings describing. I mean, Paul can express and go, I was so overjoyed that we're back in relationship with each other. I am so overjoyed with this. When's the last time if someone did repent to you and you said, I forgive you, that you were able to next to describe and say, brother, I am so thankful that we're okay now. I am so thankful. Like, when can we go hang out again? When was the last time that you and your spouse had an exchange where one repented, one said, I forgive you. And then the next thing was, I am so glad we're okay. Man, can we go and go spend a ridiculous amount of money on a dinner tonight and just celebrate with each other? You might be thinking like, there's no way we'll do that, but we'll do the first thing. So look at this. He says, so he says in verse 8, they have a longing. In verse 7, they have a longing, a mourning, a zeal for you. Paul says, I'm so rejoicing. For he says, and even if I made you grieve with my letter in verse 8, this is 2 Corinthians 7, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. Notice that Paul's even able to describe like, man, I was hurt. I had to write you a letter that was hurtful. I regretted it, but I don't regret it. It brought you to repentance. But man, this was hard. What? Now, what great stability here. He's describing, and it's really not about him the whole time, but he is willing to open his heart wide to them, to describe the feelings and emotions of what's going on as he's doing all these things, trying to reconcile back with them. It's amazing. Keep looking. He says this. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. Verse 10. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Paul says, I'm so thankful that the emotion of godly grief, a godly grief happened in your life and brought you to a godly repentance. A godly repentance leads to life and restoration. An ungodly, uh, an, an, a worldly grief produces death. I'll give you an example. Judas, his repentance was what we would call a worldly grief that produces death. It just produced suicide in his life. He didn't run to the Savior. There was no restoration of joy. Peter, he may have betrayed Christ three times, but he ran back to the only source that could truly forgive him. Two different types of repentance. There's a worldly repentance that just feels bad that it gets caught, but there's no restoration back to God. There's a godly repentance that leads to um, leads back to God in a restoration of life and worship of God. Just as a side note, if you're ever in a relationship and you're wondering, is a, is a person really repented? Look at their life. Look at the fruit of their life. Is there a restoring of relationship back to God? Paul says, uh, I see this. You it. it There was a restoring back to God. Look in verse 11. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. What eagerness to clear yourselves. They want to confess their sin. What indignation. They are. They are. They are seeing their sin as God sees it. What fear of God. What longing. What zeal. What punishment. They want to be right with Paul. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in this matter. Paul says. Verse 12. So although I wrote, wrote to you. It was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, 
nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God, therefore we are comforted. Look at this. I wrote so that to be revealed to you in the sight of God, therefore we are comforted. Paul says, I, I wrote that letter, not just for the one who had done the wrong, not just the one who had potentially influenced their wrong assessment of Paul and a rejection of his ministry towards them. But I did it so that God could be in you, so that you could repent, so that we could be restored. And in this now, I'm comforted. I mean, Paul doesn't even act like some stoic. A lot of times, if you're the ministry leader of something, you almost picture Paul as this stoic person, untouched by feelings and emotions. That's not him. He says, I'm actually comforted by the fact that you repented. I'm comforted that you have owned up to what's going on. I'm comforted that we're restored. I'm comforted that Titus has come and given me such a great response from you guys. Keep looking in verse 13. Besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. Even Titus, even Titus is refreshed by their repentance. Even the expression of them opening up their hearts to him. For whatever boast I made about him, about you, I was not put to shame. But just as in everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. Verse 15. And his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all. Now, do you all remember a couple of weeks ago we talked about the word affection, um, compassion, kind of kind of at the level of the spleen. Do you remember us talking about that several weeks back? That's that same Greek word right there. Here's what I love. If you're in enough relationships in life, things will go bad at some point because of the deceitfulness of sin. But friends, don't lose heart when those things happen in your relationships. Why? Because if you'll pursue that relationship, something more beautiful and stronger can emerge from the other side. Paul's able to go, even even Titus, his affection for you now has grown. It's gone deep, even to the deep parts of, of the inside for you. It's greater as he remembers your obedience, as he's seen what you've done, how you have received him with fear and trembling. Even he's got to see the repentance of your emotions. And Paul says in verse 16, I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. Paul say, man, I, in the end, this was bad. But look at all the good that God has done from this. My hope is, is in just talking about this today is. You're going to get hurt emotionally by people. But the way of the cross and the way of Christ is not to exalt ourselves. And exalting ourselves is we shut ourselves up. We grow bitter and not better. We actually need to engage the person. We need to describe the hurt that's going on, but not just so we can just have some rant for the glory of God and the good of that person. And as that relationship is restored, it's okay to actually describe the joy that you're feeling when when that relationship is restored or the joy you're feeling as the little pieces of that relationship is restored. You know, sometimes when we have these really big relational problems, you Sometimes you're solving little bitty pieces of that relationship and rejoice in those little bitty wins and those little bitty battles before the war is won. Paul is doing this. 
By the way, if you keep reading this book, you find in chapter 8 and 9, he, he now goes into chapter 8 and he talks about this offering that he's receiving for the saints in Jerusalem. He has such confidence that, I mean, remember, they had said things about him that weren't true, and it really revolved around this whole idea of money, of which he never accepted from them. Now, he goes back in chapter 8 and he's now talking about receiving an offering from them, right? For the poor saints in Jerusalem. What confidence... He must have in a restored relationship with them that he could. He's not only saying, I've opened my heart to you and now you're opening it to me. Now you've opened it to Titus and what joy this is. But then also he's like, hey, there's a generous offering that the Macedonians have made. And what about you? Now, that shows you that relationship is right back where it should be. So my hope is in preaching and talking about this today. Is that we're confronted with reality that we God has given us emotions. God has emotions. Our emotions are not always righteous, just his always is. But if our goal in life is to love God and love others, then our emotions can be right and appropriate. And Paul here is a great example, opens his soul up. And listen, these people hurt him and hurt him bad. But there's nothing that anybody has ever done to you or will do to you that goes above what we've done to him. The standard of our forgiveness is not our feelings, it's Christ. But when Christ is the standard of our forgiveness, then the emotions that come from that will be right, good, loving, just. So we see Paul in the full scope and scheme of it here. So let me speak some practical words that, that I've, I've been wanting to say. Let's talk about this like even in relation to marriage. You'll see this sometimes where a wife may say, you know, my husband, he's just emo- emotionally withdrawn from me. I really know, never know what's going on with him emotionally. Well, I'll tell you a couple things. One is this. Be careful as a wife to think that your husband has to match or has to have some picture of emotions to, to have a good husband that loves you. Don't do that, man. You're, you're trying to make something out of him that may not be him. At the same time, I would encourage you husbands is a greater thing that you can do is weep with those that weep, rejoice with those that rejoice, which means if you see emotions in your life's, in your wife's life, try to match them. If she's excited about something, you be excited. There's this kind of give and take like men. Try to push towards her. I'm not telling you to be, I'm not talking some manufactured, you know, sappy emotion so that your wife is happy. You know, there's so many wives that are like, you know, my husband would be a better husband if he would just be more emotional. And I would go, you may be putting an idolatrous idea on him. It may be more about you than the glory of God and his good, okay? So I would say, don't don't press him in that way and think, just because you read some book that your husband has to act in some emotional way so or else you can't have a good marriage. That's not true. But also go the other side to men that... You need to observe the emotions of your wife and practice a lot more mirroring if you can. If she's weeping, don't joke about it. Enter into that sorrow with her. If she's excited and joyful, even if it's something that you're not excited and joyful about, enter into that. What do we see in the the scope of what we've even said today? Here's Paul opening himself up, mirroring, letting them know there is an open open emotion here. There's vulnerability, and there's the pursuit of Christ. I'll end with this quote that I read. I thought it was really good, and then we'll be done here um, for this. 
When those whom God loved rejected him, he came and spoke to them in person. When they took advantage of his vulnerability and rejected him again, he responded by moving toward them in mercy rather than rage and defensiveness. You'll see that in the Passion Week of Christ. You can read about it. And no matter what, he is committed to working things out with his children forever because he loves them. For this reason, we engage in relationships best when we follow the incarnational love of Jesus. Our best relational moments, the ones we will look back upon with fondness as turning points and bonding moments with our loved ones, will be the times when we enter difficult emotional conflict by leading with vulnerability and empathy, following through with clarity and patience, letting them all frame legitimate concerns, all for the glory of God, all for the good of the other person, just like we see with the Savior. That's my hope. May our relationships in our church and our families at work be such a model that we don't deny the emotions, we don't exalt the emotions, but we're human beings towards people. To the glory of God. Would you stand with me as we pray over this? Father, I'm so confident in this love of Christ that controls us, that shows us. I'm thankful for the example how you displayed anger righteously, jealousy, love, patience. The pain that would happen this week did not drive you from the relationships. What Peter was going to do did not cause you to ultimately cast him off. Lord, what an example. May we catch, I know it's hard for our souls sometimes, we, we kind of feel like Jesus is cheating because he's God and he can do these things perfect. So can we drink deeply from the example of Paul applying that to his own life for the glory of God? What, what relational pursuit there was here, all with the proper use of emotions for your glory. Help us in that as we navigate this. May it cause a strengthening of our friendships. May we be able to listen well when there's emotional hurt. May we be able to repent when our emotions are self-seeking and self-exalting. May we forgive as Jesus has forgiven us. And may we be able to describe to each other the comfort and joy and excitement of restored relationships. Let us do it for your glory. We contemplate this important week, and God's people said, Amen. Let's sing together.